Are liberal arts degrees all that they're cracked up to be? When we're seeing the spread of post-grad programs that promote skills like coding and data science, from organizations like General Assembly to MOOC platforms like Coursera, it can make one wonder, is it even worth it to get a degree in English literature or African history anymore? Or where does one go with the bachelors in romance languages? Probably not to the Silicon Valley. But talk to journalist George Anders, who has just had a story grace the cover of Forbes this week, and you may be pleasantly surprised to hear his take on your BA. The title of his article, That Useless Liberal Arts Degree Has Become Tech's Hottest Ticket. We talked to him to go behind the scenes on the article and learn more about why startups are starting to hire art history majors over math and engineering experts. All that, plus our weekly roundup of the EdTech news coming up. I'm Mary Jo Mata. And I'm Michael Winters. Welcome to the EdSurge podcast. Let's get started. Many schools may be behind on the technology adoption curve. But that doesn't mean that tech-savvy educators can't find ways to adopt and adapt technology tools. Recently, some teachers have started turning to freemium tools designed for businesses to help in their classroom. Two of these tools, Slack and Trello, help many companies, including us at EdSurge, to organize their workflows and internal communication, respectively. Our very own Tony Wan spoke with several enterprising teachers using these tools and offers some tips on how you can get in on the action. LMS maker Blackboard has been on the acquisition hunt lately, gobbling up 10 companies since January 2014. But now the tables may be turning. According to sources at Reuters, Blackboard itself could be sold for a potential sum of $3 billion. The company is currently owned by Providence Equity Partners, a private equity firm, so rumors of a potential sale aren't exactly earth-shattering. Blackboard has long been the leader in learning management systems, but has recently been losing ground to upstarts like Instructure and others. It seems like every school wants to build a makerspace these days, but ensuring your teachers are ready for it is a big part of the process. Now, Dr. Todd Karuskin, an assistant superintendent from Pennsylvania, has been down that road, and he brought several tips to EdSurge for leading PD for new makerspace STEM teachers. Specifically, utilize the station rotation model to introduce educator pairs to a number of different makerspace products like 3D printers and Arduino boards. When they create their own products, they're more likely to understand potential ways to implement the tools in the classroom. Ever heard of the term MOOCs? It seems like they're getting all of the attention and money in higher ed these days. But the money monopoly, at least, may be about to change. New York City-based University Ventures has just announced a $5 million seed fund for investing in startups focused on helping colleges and universities better connect students and employers. In addition to the fund, University Ventures has already invested in four higher ed-focused companies, each of which promises to help students prepare for jobs or lower the operating costs for institutions. Last week, we received a request from an educator in Cincinnati for our Because You Asked series. Call it our EdSurge version of Dear Abby. Now, the Cincinnati educator asked how she could bring design thinking to her school for free without needing to bring in a fancy and probably expensive consultant. Well, we heeded her call, but with one caveat. You have to be careful when finding any free alternatives online because it can lead to a proliferation of design thinking without really feeling any notions of empathy 
or learning from failure. And after all, that's the basis of what design thinking really is. But we hooked Cincinnati up with an idea. Connect with other design-minded educators on the hashtag DTK12 Twitter chat to start building a professional learning community. And once that's done, experience design thinking for yourself with a free course from Acumen and IDEO that starts on August 20th. If you're interested in signing up, visit plusacumen.org. And now it's time for Kachings. This week, we're taking a look back at the first half of this year. According to our count, U.S. EdTech raked in $1.1 billion over 107 separate deals from January to June of this year. That's a 52% increase on the total from the same period in 2014. And contrary to some other analyses out there, our data show that EdTech investment is increasing over time, though there is a little bit of fluctuation quarter by quarter. Our managing editor, Tony Wan, and director of growth, Tyler McNally, break down all the numbers and analyze why it seems like all news organizations disagree over EdTech funding totals over on edsurge.com. And now for today's deep dive. One sentence that I hear a lot around Silicon Valley when I talk to EdTech people, which is a little concerning for me, is... Coding is the new literacy. You ever heard that, Mary Jo? I have heard that, and I've also heard it in the context of we should stop teaching foreign language and mm. instead teach computer science. Right. It seems like computer science degrees are, are super hot these days. Computer science, engineering, math, those are all really important, there's no doubt. But maybe there's a place for the traditional liberal arts degree as well. And it kind of makes me wonder, having been an art history and art theory and practice double major when I was in college, <laughs> now I work for an ed tech company, I guess expect the unexpected. But if you talk to George Anders, who is going to be on the podcast today, he has some interesting thoughts, actually, about how the Silicon Valley is starting to react to potentially bringing on people with interesting bachelors of arts degrees. Our friend and managing editor, Tony Wan, sat down with George to ask him about all those issues. Here's their interview. Awesome. Well, thank you, George, for sitting down in our nice Ed Surge podcast booth today. Wanted to ask you a little bit about your recent Forbes article that tackles the question of how liberal arts degrees are perceived in the technology world. And one of the things that you argue are that companies are placing more emphasis on hiring individuals who have the soft skills that liberal arts degrees typically embodied. Um, what do you think um, about the switch and when the switch took place? So it's probably about a five to 10 year trend that's been taking shape. And in fact, in the article, I look at Open Table which originally started out very much as a pure engineering company in the web 1.0 age. And as they've gone to deal more with individual restaurants, as well as all of us who want to make bookings, they've discovered they need far more people to go out and be the customer relationship managers. In fact, one of the things that struck me is they're able to do all of their data analytics with just 14 uh, data scientists, but they have 135 people going out and then taking that data to restaurants. So what we've got is a world where you need a lot of people with interpersonal skills to drive the change that you want. It's easy to sit with a small engineering team and say we have a big disruptive idea, but if your idea is ever going to take root in the rest of society, you're going to need maybe 5x or 10x the number of people to go out and do the selling and the persuading and the strategic work to get the rest of the world to embrace what you've got. And a lot of those people are going to be liberal arts majors, not coders. Mm -hmm. And in your story, you lead off with a story about Slack as 
a prime example of a company whose editorial head has a pretty interesting background. I mean, what is it about these types of individuals that, you know, where they that fits them into these roles pretty well? And would you say that an engineer or a computer scientist could play the same role as Slack's editorial head? Or, I mean, should we keep the engineers coding and these, um, you know, other liberal arts majors doing other things within the company? So Slack is a really interesting example because what they're delivering is simplicity and clarity and a certain level of joyfulness or playfulness that whoever thought meeting scheduling could be kind of fun. But a big part of their concept is we will take the routine chores of keeping your team coordinated and keeping your office running and bring a little bit of wit and theater to them. So if you want theater, why not get someone who actually wanted to be an actress and got an undergraduate degree in drama and a master's as a dramaturg? So they've got uh, Anna Picard, who uh, is, if you will, the voice of Slack. She's the one who will fine-tune some of Slackbot's messages so that they have just that right level of wit and friendliness, and that ends up being very effective. But there's no reason some engineers can't do that as well. And in fact, Eric Costello, who's head of client development at Slack, has a pure engineering background, but he also has a lovely way with words and some of his error messages, which are done in this self-deprecating, very bashful, almost John Cleese, Monty Python kind of style, become classics in their own right. And instead of people getting angry when there's a problem, they almost look forward to see, okay, how is Eric going to explain his way out of that one? So when you've got an engineer who's got that level of wit, that's wonderful. But not every engineer does. In fact, it's only a minority who do. And in cases like that, you can make very wonderful teams by pairing someone who's got the technical strength to make the system work, and then someone who's got the liberal arts creativity and imagination to make it all fun and engaging to the user. So your look at humanities at this time and age is pretty interesting because we are, at least if you read the headlines, in an era where there's a lot of emphasis on STEM and coding initiatives. Um, everyone from Obama and the politicians to various schools and foundations are pouring a lot of money and a lot of drawing a lot of attention into these teaching kids to code initiatives. I mean, what what do you think about you know the viability of these kinds of uh, this, this focus on STEM and coding skills, you know, versus you know some of the what you're seeing in companies that actually value the humanities. So there's a big role for coding, and I don't want to minimize it. I think that's a great career track for the people who have the engineering strength and the discipline to pursue it. I just don't think it's the one size fits all answer. And let me give you a couple examples that concern me. There have been big initiatives in Detroit to get more kids coding on the belief that Detroit could become a Midwestern Silicon Valley. The last time I talked to economic development people, they've got enough coders. They lack entrepreneurs. They lack people with the vision to figure out what the next startup should be. And if you've got a big pool of technically trained labor and no companies for them to work at, you really haven't moved that far forward. The other point I'd make is that if you're a world-class engineer, you can have an amazing future. And we now write about engineers who go on to five and six figure and seven figure pay packages and big stock options, almost as if it's people uh, going into the NBA. And I think the comparison with athletes is very apt. That there isn't nearly as much work for someone who's a B plus coder or a B minus coder, and not everyone is going to be the coder of the century. The nice thing about some of the sales and marketing jobs that I've uh, turned attention to in my story is there's room for people who do it beautifully with great skill. There's room for people who are medium productive. You can still make a living uh, on some of the soft skill jobs, even if you aren't the best person that's ever walked the planet. It's awfully hard if you are 
not quite good enough to make the cut for the engineering jobs to still say that you're a coder. Is that, when we look at the proliferation of these coding boot camps around the country, perhaps even around the world, would you say that these are programs that are maybe put, um, where people come out as, you know, A, A minus coders versus, you know, the B, you know, the, the B grade coders? There's a risk that the top 10% of your graduates will go on and get jobs and the bottom half won't. Uh, my other concern is it's so easy to start one of these programs right now and so easy to get funding that we'll have a little bit of a Gresham's Law here, that the bad coding schools will drive out the good. And in the same way that we've seen other sort of for-profit skills uh, training centers become a, a haven for programs that actually just don't deliver what they promise. Uh, I think the first 10 coding schools, probably wonderful. The next 50, pretty good. The next 5,000, not nearly as good as the early ones. Mm -hmm. How do you think some of the ideas in your article, your Forbes piece, kind of applies to what you're seeing in the education technology, some of the trends as a, as a whole? So a really important thing in education technology is you can have the most wonderful new system imaginable, but if you can't get school districts to adopt it, it's never going to make it out of your whiteboard, your sandbox, what have you. And I think it's crucial for ed tech companies not just to think about what the solutions that they might have are, but how they're going to get them into the marketplace. And that's going to require not just a sales force, but also a team of people who can change the conversation, who can get their ideas known. Some of the classic big picture marketing approaches that may not be tied to a specific product, but are tied toward changing public awareness. And simply to have the engineering approach of throw it over the wall and wait for people to buy it is not going to work as well. So I think a, an ed tech startup that's got an ambitious and realistic plan is going to spend just as much time thinking about how to get its ideas adopted as it is trying to make them. And last question, do you think that people with a liberal arts background or liberal arts degree, these kinds of folks, will they become a hot commodity in the sense that, you know, they say a lot of software engineers and programmers are very, uh, very hot commodity these days? So you're going to need to be more than just a liberal major, liberal arts major. You're going to be a liberal arts major plus. So if the answer is, I wrote a long paper on Kierkegaard and that's what I know how to do, no, you're not going to have Facebook and Google fighting to hire you and you know, taking you out for entertainment. If the answer is, I've done a lot of critical reasoning in, my, reasoning in my classes, and I've held interesting internships, I've done some exercises on uh, marketing and startup development, and I can bring you that caliber of thinking and apply it in a business setting, then yes, you're going to be much more uh, attractive to the job market. So, in fact, some of the follow-up writing that I'm going to do is, okay, you've got your liberal arts degree, now what? And it will focus on how to build up a parallel portfolio of business experience and business relevant skills and achievements so that you're seen as the liberal arts major who can do something as opposed to that's the person who wrote the paper on Kierkegaard. Cool. Well, thank you very much, George, for joining us on our podcast. Pleasure. Okay, that's it for today. Big thanks to George Anders for chatting with us about his article in Forbes. And thanks also to Dr. Todd Karuskin and all of the other writers who contributed to EdSearch this week. And thank you to everyone who joined us on Periscope for this recording. We had a lot of fun hanging out with you guys. And actually, as we're recording this right now, we are currently on Periscope, so it's even better. That's true. This is super meta. Uh, Jack Regan, 2001, just joined. Thank you. And this week, hey, if you're an administrator out there and you're listening, we have a new free service for you. 
It's called our EdSurge Concierge, and administrators all over the country have been using it to focus their search for new EdTech tools. Here's how it works. Team EdSurge runs through a 30-minute diagnostic to help you identify your needs. We search for products that can help you and then deliver a tailored list of solutions that make sense for your school, all totally free. Just head to concierge.edsurge.com to find out more. And uh, hey, companies, if you want to get involved, head to that same address, concierge.edsurge.com. And finally, as always, thanks to each and every single one of you listeners for continuing to listen and for reading EdSurge. Thanks to you, July was our best month ever for the podcast, and we are obscenely grateful for your continued support. Obscenely grateful. Obscenely grateful. Very strong word. (laughs) Definitely are. Thank you all so very much. But for this week, that is all. I'm Michael Winters. And I'm Mary Jo Matta. We'll see you next week. This is the EdSurge Podcast. Thank <laughs> you.